Amen. And if that was a little random, a little bit strange, uh, well, there might be one or two Rembrandts popping up in the sermon. So um, we're going to turn now to Genesis 37. Uh, Genesis chapter 37. I trust you can find Genesis. Uh, it is where you would think it would be. I was all set to spend the next three Sundays uh, looking at another short letter from the New Testament, but uh, after 2 Timothy and 2 and 3 John, I fancied a change. So <laughs> we're going to take three weeks to skim through the last 14 chapters of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph. And I'm going to help myself out a little bit here. Uh, Genesis, a strange and difficult book, a story of, of beginnings, uh, of the creation of the world and, and everything in it, a story of mankind created to resemble and reflect God himself and to rule the world both for God and with God. It's a story of betrayal, of Adam and Eve deciding that all that wasn't enough for them, a story of brother killing brother, and of sin so rampant that God started over with Noah. It's also a story of blessing, of a God determined to bless, determined to love, determined to save. It's a story of a promised seed of Eve, a son who would reverse the curse of sin. It's a story of a childless old man chosen to father a nation, Abraham of his son Isaac and grandson Jacob, of the sin and failings of their lives uh, and the realization that none of them could be the promised one. And in fact, God is going to have to fulfill his promises and save us from ourselves and from the mess we make. And Genesis 37 to 50 is the story of two half-brothers, Joseph and Judah. Joseph foreshadows the path of Jesus, sold by his brothers before rising to the right hand of the king, where he uses his power to rescue those who betrayed him. Judah is one of the betrayers, and a long way from the kind of guy we need to reverse the curse. And he's, but he's brought to repentance, confessing his sin, being restored, uh, becoming the head of the tribe that would bear the lion of Judah himself, the Lord Jesus. Now we're going to cover some of that in the next three weeks. It is hot. I don't know what it'll be like for the next few week, next couple of weeks, but uh, we're not going to perhaps dive as deeply as we could, but we'll, uh, we'll skim through and take some big lessons as we go along. Today we're looking at Genesis 37 with just the very briefest of references to Genesis 38, very briefest. Uh, and our big question as we open today is, can we trust God's promises? Is God trustworthy? Can we trust God's promises? But before we ask and, and try to answer that question, before we start questioning God, uh, the opening to the story today would have us remember that we make a mess with our sins. So that's where we're going to begin as we, as we read uh, in just a moment. Uh, we make a mess with our sin. If we're going to question God, let's first remember the mess that we made. Let, let's read the first uh, ooh, 11 verses of Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. 
Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Then he told his father as well as his brothers, or sorry, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Okay, we'll pause there. I'll read the rest of the chapter in a minute. So Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he's got a complicated family life, doesn't he? He's got two wives and two servants who are also wives, kind of. And all four of these women have had his children, but he only loves one of them, his wife, Rachel. Uh, Jacob and Rachel had two sons together, Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob uh, had 10 other older sons, so that's 12 in total. Uh, But Joseph is the son that Jacob loves best. Uh, It's the sort of thing that brothers and sisters joke about, isn't it? Being the favorite, uh, being mum's favorite, being dad's favorite. But really, of course, it's very, very bad for the whole family if mum or dad have favorites. And if mum or dad do have a soft spot for one of their children, they would be very wise A, to hide it, and B, to try to change it, try and change that attitude. Uh, Jacob was not that wise as a father. Uh, Joseph was the boy who made his favorite wife happy, the little boy who came along later in life, now the teenager who hasn't yet caused some of the trouble his older brothers have caused. Uh, Jacob shows off his love for Joseph, giving him this very special outfit, this richly ornamented robe or coat of many colors is the the obvious phrase, isn't it? It's the sort of gift that would normally go to the firstborn, the oldest, which uh, in the sons of Jacob was a chap called Reuben. Uh, And Jacob clearly loved Joseph the most. And verse four says the brothers knew it. Now, Joseph, for his part, only made things worse. Verse two, he was a telltale and nobody likes that. Then he's parading around in this fancy robe, and he tells them about these two dreams. So here's a little bit of Rembrandt. Again, the picture's not amazing today. Um, It's very bright, isn't it? But uh, here he is. I think Rembrandt's done well to sort of capture how young Joseph looks there in the middle, and all these older brothers around. uh, Kind of, it seems so silly that he would sit there and, and tell them these dreams. But he does. Uh, And uh, so what you say, well, they're only dreams, but dreams in Genesis are often ways for God to communicate what he's doing. And the first dream is about the 11 brothers bowing down to Joseph. The second dream is about uh, the 11 brothers and uh, mom and dad bowing down to him. Joseph is so annoying that even his father is miffed at this point. And his brothers, well, they're way more than annoyed, aren't they? Verse 4, They hate him and couldn't speak a kind word to him. Verse 8, they hated him all the more because of his dream. And verse 11, they were jealous of him. We do make a mess with our sin. 
So look, some quick lessons before we uh, move on. Number one, Jacob was wrong to have a favorite son. Uh, and he was unwise to make it so obvious. Uh, parents, love your children. Treat your children equally as best you can. Number two, Joseph was wrong to rub it in with his brothers. Uh, parading around in this special robe, telling them about his dreams when he would have been wiser to keep quiet. Brothers and sisters, don't wind each other up, please. <laughs> might be fun for you, but it can really hurt. So Jacob was wrong to have a favorite son. Joseph was wrong to rub it in. And Joseph's brothers, thirdly, were wrong to hate him. They couldn't stop their dad having a favorite. They couldn't stop Joseph showing it off. But they were wrong to let hurt and jealousy become hatred. Don't let jealousy take root and grow in your life. Um, they did, though, and that led to them doing something horrible. And that takes us to our next heading this morning. God allows horrible things to happen. See, we're getting closer to this idea of can we trust him? Uh, because God allows horrible things to happen. We're, uh, we're coming to God's part in the story, but let's stick with the brothers Grimm. Let's read from verse 12. Uh, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and uh, Israel said to Joseph, that's Jacob said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. And uh, skip down to verse 17. We'll skip the part where he goes to the wrong place and they've already moved on. Verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now, the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, 
In mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And we'll pick up that part of the story next time. Um, so this, this is all about the hatred the brothers have for Joseph. It's probably just the 10 older brothers. Uh, Joseph is in his late teens, isn't he? So Benjamin will be younger, the youngest of all. He probably wasn't out with them, but the older brothers hate Joseph. There's a little bit of, oh, we don't want to kill him, but it's not out of love, isn't it? There's a little bit of, oh, is my flesh and blood but we're still going to sell him and never see him again in our lives. So it's, there's a little bit of, of covering their own backs, but not, uh, it's not love. It's just self-preservation, isn't it? Uh, verse 18, it starts, they saw him in the distance and they plotted to kill him. Verse 19, they're especially furious and jealous about these dreams. They're still hung up on these dreams. This dreamer, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Reuben plans to rescue Joseph, so... Uh, they throw him into this dried-up well, and they sit down to have a meal and have a good laugh. Maybe they're within earshot. Maybe Joseph can hear them. Maybe he's crying out to them, begging for his life, but they're sitting, having their food. Uh, later, they spot these passing traders, and Judah suggests they sell their brother. That way, they're, they're innocent of murder, you know, innocent, <laughs> but they get rid of him out of their lives, and they make a profit. Uh, verse 26, Judah wants to make a gain doesn't he? What are we going to gain? There's a little bit of uh, half-done Rembrandt. This is a, as far as he got with this part of the story, I think. Joseph, mm, second left, maybe. One of the brothers taking the, taking the shekels in the middle. I have no idea where you could see this in real life, this sketch. Didn't do that much research. <laughs> but uh, they do it. They sell their brother, and they watch him being dragged off over the horizon, never to see him or hear from him ever again, never to know even where he's gone. And with a bit of blood from a goat, they ruin this robe. They make their own father believe that he's dead, killed by some wild animal. And they keep up that lie with their grieving father for the rest of, of well, almost the rest of his life. Almost the rest of his life. Though it fixed nothing in that broken family. It didn't change their father's heart for them. It only broke their father's heart. Uh, this is the last one, <laughs> the last Rembrandt I'll show you today. Uh, no more Rembrandts next week, I don't think. There's Jacob, obviously, in the middle, uh, being told and, and coming to terms with this news. And it's horrible, isn't it? Horrible. Where is God in all this? I wonder if Joseph thought about that on the way to Egypt. Uh, this long, difficult, hot journey. Uh, God promised uh, his great-grandfather Abraham that his family would become great, but 12 brothers is apparently too many to get along. Joseph promised Abraham's or God promised that Abraham's family would be blessed and be a blessing to others, but Joseph's brothers threw him in a well and sold him to strangers. God promised that Abraham's family would have a land of their own, but Joseph, who started that day a free man, a young man, in that land, finished the day being dragged as a slave to a foreign place. Where is God in all of that? Uh, where is God when this horrible stuff happens? Can we trust God and his promises? There are some lessons uh, we can learn here before we come to our final uh, heading. Uh, one, God uses the wicked actions of sinful people to accomplish his purposes. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that evil sinful actions are good. They're still bad. 
And it doesn't mean that God needs sinful people to get his jobs done. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, well, as long as the outcome is good, it doesn't matter how we got there. And, you know, the end justifies the means. Uh, no, it means that God is the kind of God with the ability to overturn evil and to harness it for good, and the kind of God with the desire to overturn evil and harness it for good. And if we think long enough about that, I think we will see that that is wonderful. God is the kind of God who would make a garden grow in a rubbish stump, who would turn toxic waste into some sort of clean fuel, who would turn brotherly betrayal into saved lives and saved relationships. Spoiler alert, that is where this is going, this story, in a couple of weeks' time. Perhaps you know it already. (laughs) Uh, God uses the wicked actions of sinful people to accomplish his good purposes. Another lesson, uh, God doesn't have to explain himself to us. This is hard to to grasp, isn't it? We're we're very quick to ask where God is when horrible things happen. Maybe Joseph uh, cried out to God along those lines all the way to Egypt. Why, Why are you allowing this? Why has this happened to me? God tells us that his ways are right and good and wise, uh, more so than we could ever imagine or understand, but he doesn't have to explain them to us. I think he tells Job that he wouldn't understand them even if he did explain them. (laughs) We need to learn to trust God because of who he is, not because we understand and approve of what he's doing. An old phrase says that we need to learn to trust where we cannot trace. Trust God when we can't see what he's doing and where things are going. God doesn't have to explain himself to us. And and one more lesson, God works to his own timetable. What a long, long time there will be between Joseph being cruelly sold by his brothers and being mightily used by God. And he will be. What a long time Joseph has to wait in his life before he sees the God that good the good that God will do in him and through him out of the evil that his brothers did to him. We know and God promises that in all things he works for the good of those who love him, but we're not told when. Um, God works to his own timetable. So how do we learn to trust a God like this? How do we learn to trust him when he allows horrible things to happen. We need to look again uh, at God's record, at his ways. If we're going to trust him in the present and the future, we need to look at what he's done in the past. What has, what has he done? What does he do? What is he like? Uh, and so our last heading then, God overturns evil for good. This is, this is who he is. This is what he's like. God overturns evil for good. Uh, Genesis is tricky because we, we often forget the big picture. I don't know if the last time you maybe tried to sit down and read Genesis cover to cover, it starts very familiar sort of ways, you know, creation and Cain and Abel and the flood and then there's Abraham and then it sort of gets a bit weird and it gets a bit long and it gets a bit detailed and it's kind of hard to keep a, a handle on the big picture. God creates mankind. Mankind turns against him. God promises a savior to reverse the curse of sin. That's the, that's the big background. Then God singles out a family to become a nation uh, to bless the world and deliver this Savior. And from chapter 13 onwards, it's basically very depressing to anyone who uh, is looking for a glimpse of that hope and a glimpse of that future. Abraham often makes a mess uh, instead of trusting God. Isaac 
makes some of the exact same mistakes. And as a reader, you're thinking, come on, guys. Uh, Jacob starts off as a liar and a cheat. And now Jacob's 12 sons are doing their best impressions of Cain and Abel, making a mess of the whole family. How are these guys going to lead towards the promised seed of Eve in Abraham's family tree, the Savior son? Not to mention the massive famine that within a few chapters is going to threaten to wipe them all out anyway. And we know as well, don't we, that the Savior Son is going to come from the line of Judah. They don't know that yet. We do. It's Judah, though, who hatched the idea of selling Joseph into slavery, making some money from him as they got rid of him out of their lives. And I'm going to leave it to you to, uh, to read Genesis 38 and discover just what a piece of work Judah is. So what's going to happen to this seed, this Savior Son? Salvation is basically in shreds here in Genesis 37. Can we trust God's promises? Uh, and don't we need to know the answer to that question for the ups and downs of our own lives? And the answer is yes, we can. We can trust God and his promises. We can. And one huge piece of evidence for this is how we see Jesus in the story of Joseph. So Joseph uh, dreams about his family bowing down to him as, as king, and he receives this coat of many colors, this rich robe, which uh, later in the Bible is the sort of clothing which has uh, royal and priestly associations. Jesus comes as the true priest and the true king. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, especially Judah. Uh, the Greek version of Judah is Judas. It's like, um, it's like Charles and Carlos. It's the same names, just different languages. Judah is Judas. Judah, one of the 12 brothers, uh, betrays Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph is reported dead. Jesus is dead and buried. Joseph's royal robe was ruined with blood. Jesus' clothes were divided up as his blood actually was shed. Joseph, will go down into prison, but rise to the right hand of the king and use his power to save his brothers and the nations. Jesus will go down into death, but then rise to the right hand of God the king and use his power to save a multitude that no one can count. And we'll see a little more, I think, in the coming weeks. But the truth of Genesis is that while human beings go from bad to worse, Across the book, that's what's happening. Human beings are going from bad to worse. God remains determined to bless, determined to love, and determined to save. I'm sure you, well, you, you might already know that, that Joseph does see his brothers again. Uh, famine brings them to Egypt, where they bow down to him just as his dreams predicted. And he says, uh, Genesis 50 verse 20, and you'll hear this once or twice in the coming weeks, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So says Joseph, as his brothers bow down to him. It's like a motto of the whole book, really, the motto of Genesis, the motto of salvation itself. We intend harm, we intend evil, but God intends good and the saving of many lives. That's the kind of God he is. That's his record. That's what he does. That's why we can trust him. Um, 
So look, as we, as we finish, I guess sometimes when suffering comes, it's the result of our own sin. We make a mess of things uh, and we suffer the consequences. Sometimes that's the case. Other times, trouble's not directly down to us. It might be caused by other people to us. It might be just one of those things that happen in a fallen world, um, that, a world that, that is groaning for God's restoration. Um, God, meanwhile, doesn't have to explain himself to us in the moment. He doesn't have to work to any timetable but his own. But he is a God who specializes not only in uh, thwarting evil intentions. He's not only just disrupting evil, but he's harnessing it for his good purposes and ultimately for salvation. These brothers, they're longing to get rid of Joseph, this dreamer. Well, we'll see what's going to become of his dreams, they say. (laughs) They would never have sold him to Egypt if they'd known that one day they would bow down to him there. Uh, But God will, he will, will melt their frozen hearts He will calm their anger. He will humble their pride. He will secure their food supply and save his people so that this special seed, this savior son can come. God will take Judah, the chief betrayer of Genesis 37, and he'll make him the forerunner of the lion of Judah, the savior of the world, the Lord Jesus. Nothing can stop God overturning evil for good. And that is a God we can trust with our whole lives. We're going to pray and then we're going to think just ever so briefly about these very same things as we share communion. Uh, Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we do make a mess of things. We do make a mess uh, with sin. Uh, Now, we might not have sold our siblings, but we do see a bit of these brothers in ourselves. We can be very self-centered, very uh, sensitive, very jealous, very angry, uh, very untruthful. And whatever might show on the surface of our lives uh, is really only the tip of what's in our hearts. And on top of all that, we doubt you. When disaster, disaster comes, we question you. We thank you, though, for the clear and gracious and emphatic testimony of your word and of your record in all your dealings with mankind. You are a God who has the power and the desire and the joy, not just of thwarting evil, but of turning it on its head, harnessing it for good that was never intended and saving and blessing many lives. Thank you for saving us uh, and draw our minds now to the cross of Jesus where we see your grace most clearly of all. Amen.